You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme... The Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela shall refrain from taking any action which would modify the situation that currently prevails in the territory in dispute. A warning from the UN's top court unheeded as Venezuela threatens to seize the Guyanese territory of Essequibo. We'll have the latest on a border crisis which is escalating. Plus, two major human rights charities accuse Israel of deliberately targeting a group of journalists in an airstrike in Lebanon. I'll be joined by one of the authors of the report. Also, the movie Oppenheimer finally opens in Japan. I noticed today I'm looking at social media and... Certainly from film people, the reaction is great. We're going to get a chance to see it. We'll hear more from our Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson, a little later on. That's all coming up on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro has upped the stakes in his campaign to annex parts of neighbouring Guyana. He's ordered state companies in Venezuela to explore and indeed exploit areas from the Essequibo region for oil and mineral deposits. And official maps are also being redrawn. Well, to bring us the latest, I'm joined by Francisco Toro, a Venezuelan political commentator and the founder of the news website Caracas Chronicles. A very good afternoon to you, Francisco. Indeed, I should say good morning to you. Good morning. So just explain to us what is the latest development in a, in a story which, be, which sort of was sparked off at the weekend by this referendum. Well, uh, the Venezuelan government uh, has clearly decided to make as big an issue as possible out of this 450-year-old dispute for reasons that are not entirely clear to anyone. Um, Venezuela doesn't really have the military capabilities to fight a war in this very sparsely populated jungle region, hundreds of kilometers from the nearest city or road. So um, it appears to be a bit of showmanship from Maduro. I would be very surprised if it escalates beyond that. But in the dictatorship, just because something doesn't make sense doesn't mean it won't happen. But, I mean, nonetheless, all the the signs that are coming from Venezuela and from Maduro is that there is a determination to annex this part of Guyana. Um, As I said a moment ago, he's now telling companies to exploit oil and mineral deposits in this region, which is contested. He's redrawing official maps. And indeed, there there have been a series of speeches, which frankly, frankly, Guyana has found alarming, hasn't it? It's clear that he's trying to stir the pot. Um, on the other hand, I can announce right now that I am giving away oil concessions in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. That doesn't mean that I control the Upper Peninsula of Michigan or anywhere else. So um, what's been what's happening here really is about Maduro trying to create a sense of unity behind the government. There's a bit of a Galtieri effect at play here. Um, but uh, look... Again, in terms of military capabilities, in terms of what you can actually do on the ground to make these things go from the realm of of rhetoric to the realm of reality, we're very far here from something that is actually doable for the Venezuelan military. The Venezuelan military is largely a drug trafficking operation, not really a fighting force in any real way. 
And at the same time, the Guyanese, they understand, A, internationally, the, the, the area is only sort of notionally disputed in terms of international law. It's very clear that this territory is Guyanese. And B, uh, they've started conducting joint flight operations with the U.S. Southern Command in the region, which is a very loud message from the from the Biden administration to just say, don't even think about it. Indeed, I mean, and not just that, but the Guyanan president has, has promised that he will um, refer the whole thing to the UN Security Council. The international community has been absolutely clear in uh, saying that, you know, Venezuela should not try to, and I'm, and I'm quoting the UN top court here, saying, do not modify a situation that currently prevails. Um, how much is Maduro going to listen to all these these warnings and these messages? Well, when you realize that what we're really looking at is Venezuelan domestic politics dressed up as an international dispute, um, I, I think we can we can see that this is mostly theater. Maduro doesn't have the capabilities to do the things that he that he is. Threatening, and so for this reason, I think the Guyanese are clearly concerned. But there's not a sense of impending panic or alarm in Georgetown that an invasion is about to happen. They don't have the soldiers, the hardware, the capabilities to to do anything like this. So um, what we're really looking at is Moda trying to rally the country around the flag, around his figure, because he's toxically unpopular. It's very much so. That it's a, a domestic issue, you would then say. Absolutely. It's a bit bit of domestic politicking. You should understand that Maduro, when there was this referendum last Sunday, uh, his hand-picked electoral authorities claimed that 10.5 million Venezuelans voted in favor of annexing this region. But journalists who were at the polls all day around Caracas and around the country saw mostly bare polling sites with hardly anyone voting. So part of what's going on here is Maduro flexing his ability to just fake election results and and be, be seen to get away with announcing absurd election results as a way of discouraging and demobilizing his own domestic opponents. Um, in this context, therefore, when you have bellicose language, when you have promises to exploit parts of Esequibo for Esequibo for for minerals, you have the U.S. staking its claim. You have Brazil also saying that it is deploying troops along the border with Venezuela. So Brazil is clearly readying itself for something. Um, the president of Brazil is saying that he is happy to mediate. Is this what is likely to happen next? And indeed, that Maduro will be open to that kind of idea? I mean, the trouble is, and there's nothing really to mediate because this issue was settled by an arbitral award in 1899 following a treaty signed by Her Britannic Majesty Queen Victoria and the Venezuelan president at the time, which committed both Britain, which is a colonial power at the time, and Venezuela to accepting the result of the of the arbitral award, which was a 5-0 decision in favor of, of, the, of the border as it now stands in the map in your living room. So... You know, different forms of words will be found to uh, appease Venezuelan ambitions. But as a matter of international law, this is one of the clearer ones of the border signed in in the 19th century. If you can open the Essequibo territory border over Venezuelan claims that there was some kind of undue influence in an arbitral panel 125 years ago, well, you, you, you have to put a match to the map of Africa and the Middle East because all those borders 
are far dodgier than our own. So, uh, look, this is a, a territorial dispute in the way inside the minds of Venezuelans, in the same way that the Kuwait and Iraq border was a dispute only in the mind of of Saddam Hussein. Those things can escalate, as we know from from the example I just gave. But but not in a circumstance where one of the disputants is so weak as the Venezuelan military is. Um, where does this end then? How does it play out, Francisco? Does it just calm down? Does does Maduro does, does the oxygen run out of Maduro's campaign, or or can you see something which is often and tragically the case with 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 territorial disputes that should theoretically be resolved quite coolly? Something silly can happen sparking much something much worse it's a very low probability in this case these kinds of disputes won't end uh two three generations of venezuelan politicians have realized that they can quickly get a kind of nationalist dopamine hit, hit in public opinion by stirring the pot over the esequibo but because venezuela has no options either legally or militarily there this is this will remain talk, um, I'm almost certain. Francisco Toro, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is nine minutes past midday. Here's Emma Sell now with a summary of the day's main headlines. The US Secretary of State has criticised Israel for the number of civilian casualties incurred in its war in Gaza. Antony Blinken claimed there is a gap between Israel's stated aim of minimising civilian deaths and the reality on the ground. The remarks were his strongest rebuke of the country since fighting began in October. Armenia and Azerbaijan will exchange prisoners of war and move towards normalising relations, the country said in a joint statement. The neighbours have been locked in a years-long dispute over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. A military offensive in September ended three decades of ethnic Armenian rule in the region. And federal prosecutors in the United States have brought a second round of criminal charges against the president's son, Hunter Biden. He is accused of failing to pay $1.4 million in taxes and, if convicted, could face up to 17 years in prison. Hunter Biden's lawyer has claimed the charges are politically motivated. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you, Emma. Now, two major human rights charities say an airstrike which struck a group of journalists in Lebanon in October was deliberate. A Reuters journalist, Issam Abdullah, was killed and six others injured in the attack, which was carried out by the Israeli military. Well, Maria Ristich is part of Amnesty International's Crisis Response Programme, is co-author of a report into the incident, and I'm delighted to say joins me now. Very good afternoon to you, Maria. Hi, thanks a lot for having me. So before we get to the to what you have concluded in your report, could you just recap the, the context of, of this incident? Absolutely. Uh, so the incident uh, happened now already two months ago, so at the very early days of uh, the most recent conflict in um, Israel and uh, Palestine, so 13th of October, uh, the journalists went to film... Um, hostilities in Lebanon, so south of Lebanon, very near the border uh, with Israel. Um, At that time, the news was that the um, uh, Hezbollah um, fighters were trying to infiltrate um, some of the Israeli military outposts at the border. So uh, looking now from uh, two months after, um, it was still like very, very early days of the war uh, when Things were just uh, heating up, let's say. So there was this group of journalists who were standing in 
in in the open air, weren't they? They were not hiding. There was nothing to suggest that they were, you know, doing anything other than standing there waiting to report on events. They were all clearly marked as press, weren't they? They were just adhering to the to the conventions of of war reporting, staying in the right place at the right time. So, what happened next? Absolutely. So, yeah, they were on the field uh, looking at the border in uh, Israel. They were in Lebanon, so they were formerly on the Lebanese territory. Uh, it was just like a plain uh, field. And uh, I have watched uh, more than 100 videos. And in most of the videos, actually, it's very peaceful. So you see like uh, beautiful hills, uh, green and then smoke. Um, very far from them. So it was uh, around 1.5 to 2 kilometers. uh, And they were all, as you said, wearing a press vest. Um, And then they were filming different fighting. Um, It was usually a smoke. We would hear artillery sounds as well. And then at one point, they all turned their cameras uh, to one military tower. So it was uh, Israeli military outposts. Um, on in the town Hanita, and they filmed a tank, uh, Israeli Merkaba tank. Uh, the tank fires. Uh, the tank then moves uh, from the screen, um, and ten seconds after, um, they are stuck uh, for the first time. Uh, then we hear uh, screams. Uh, some of them uh, were hurt. At that point, Isam, uh, who is a Reuters journalist, was killed. So that was the first strike. And 37 seconds after, they got hit by another strike uh, that uh, was fired next to Al Jazeera car. Uh, The car uh, got to a fire and AFP journalists got seriously injured. What is it that makes you believe that this attack was deliberate? So a couple of reasons. To be precise, we say likely deliberate because we are not uh, courts and prosecutors. We are a fact-finding organization, uh, so we have to be cautious. Um, but there are a couple of things. One um, is uh, that, as you mentioned, they were clearly marked. Uh, so Israeli forces uh, knew that they were uh, journalists. How do we think we knew? they knew? Is uh, because you clearly see on the footage that there was a helicopter um, there, uh, there was a drone as well, Israeli drone. So we identified both um, vehicles. Um, we analyzed the sound with the help of the sound experts and determined that they were uh, on the location where the journalists were at least um, 46 minutes, so quite a long time. Uh, and then another very important thing is that the journalists were very close to uh at least five military outposts uh, of the Israeli army uh, that uh, do have um, very clear sight on that area. We measured in at least two. Uh, We were confident to say that uh, they were clearly seen from um, that area. Another very important part of this assessment of likely deliberate is the fact that uh, the journalists were hit twice. So, Obviously, mistakes sometimes are made by militaries, but that's usually one mistake. In this case, it was two-time hit. Uh, So that means that uh, Israeli forces obviously had um, a target. The IDF has said that the Israeli Defence Forces have told Reuters, whose journalist um, 
Issam Abdullah died in the attack. We don't target journalists. Um, what's the correct version of events then? Well, uh, in this case, it is absolutely uh, clear that they targeted civilians and that those civilians, where journalists are, were marked as press. So they all had press vests. They all uh, had uh, were equipped as journalists should be. And also the car, the Reuters car, had very big TV sign uh, on it. Also, the white card, the Al Jazeera card, was open. Uh, that is also, uh, I'm a former journalist, all of us know that if you open your car, that's also one more indication. Uh, and this was visible to the Israeli towers, as well as to the drone and uh, to the helicopter. So the fact that they didn't know that they're journalists is very, very unlikely. Another thing that we are confident that Israeli forces actually fired is the type of weapon. So the type of weapon was 120 millimeter tank round that is used only by Israeli forces um, in this war. So neither Hezbollah or other Palestinian groups um, have uh, access to um, this weapon. Maria Ristich, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Turkey's President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has made his first official visit to Athens since 2017, telling his Greek counterpart that he believes a new era is dawning in relations between their two countries. Ties have recently become closer after Greece sent rescuers and aid to Turkey after a February earthquake in which 50,000 people died. While our Istanbul correspondent Hannah Lucinda-Smith can tell us more. Very good afternoon to you, Hannah. Good afternoon. Just recap the purpose of the visit, would you please? Yeah, so this is the latest uh, in what's called a uh, cooperation dialogue between Turkey and Greece. But up to now, um, that had been taking place, meetings have been taking place between diplomats going up to, to the foreign ministers. As you say, this is the first time in a very very long time um, that you know, Erdogan has made the trip to Athens. Um, he did meet with uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis at the NATO summit earlier this year. That was the kind of starting point for these renewed relations. But it really is quite extraordinary. You only have to go back about a year. Um, and Erdogan was making all kinds of threats about you know, war in the Aegean. Greece was responding. And yet now, Yesterday, they've signed this declaration and all the talk is about peace, cooperation, resolving disputes through dialogue and through international channels. Indeed, I mean, President Erdogan said that he wishes to turn the Aegean into a sea of peace and friendship. So what's prompted this rather dramatic change? Yeah, I mean, necessity on, on Turkey's part, for sure. Since the elections in May, which which Erdogan won a new term in, we've really seen uh, him trying to kind of bring back some of the Western allies that he alienated, one of those being Greece. And he's done that, A, by hiring a new economic team, very markets friendly, who've been going around doing all kinds of outreach, trying to get foreign investors back. And he's also been doing it through diplomacy. Um, now, Greece in one sense is kind of low hanging fruit. He's had all kinds of rows all over the place with all kinds of people, um, and some of which are you know, quite difficult for him to backtrack on, thinking particularly of anything to do with uh, Israel and Gaza. You know, really for Erdogan, that's a kind of totemic issue back at home. And he has local elections coming up uh, in in spring of 2024. So he's very clearly not going to kind of backtrack on those things. But 
Um, yeah, in Greece, I think that's something that he could quite easily go for. You know, the relations between Greece and Turkey are complicated ones. They're neighbouring countries, obviously both once part of the Ottoman Empire. Culturally, particularly, you know, between Western Turkey and Eastern Greece, incredibly similar. Um, you know, you've got all these kind of, um, you know, bonds of history of families going across the Aegean. So although they do have these spats, you know, once every few years, it is also quite easy to, to make that up again. And I think, you know, for Erdogan, you know, being able to have something like this hitting the front pages of the newspapers in Greece and in Turkey it's something that really kind of boosts his image as a statesman. Indeed. I mean, what you mentioned there, all kinds of rows with all kinds of people, pretty much sums up Erdogan's relationship with the rest of the world. But there's also another facet to his personality, which you referred to just there, which is if he can see an opportunity, he will follow it. So is there a sense that this is a long-term positive and renewed, as we said, a GNC of peace? Or is there a sense that um, Turkey will take this for as long as it's useful to Erdogan? I think both of those are true. I mean, I think in the kind of immediate or midterm future, I can't really see any advantage for Erdogan in restoking this row. It did him, it was useful for him for a while. You know, it's, it's linked in as well with the row over Cyprus. Um, that's something that you can really use to get a jingoism going here in Turkey. Um, but at the moment, you know, the far bigger issue is Gaza. That's the thing that he's really going to, you know, carry on hammering home. Um, and that pulls in not only Israel, it pulls in a lot of other a lot of Turkey's other allies as well, particularly the US, European countries. Erdogan's been you know, very bombastic in his criticisms about their support for Israel. Um, so I think, you know, for the moment, the, the row with Greece is secondary. It's something that he's going to want to put on the back burner. Um, you know, at home, it's something that is also playing very well. There's, there's one thing that emerged uh, from the meeting yesterday, which is maybe kind of more minor in an international sense, but for Turks very important, and that's that um, a, a visa, not visa-free, but a, a easier visa regime for Turks to go to the Aegean uh, Greek islands. Um, something which, which was suspended in recent years, that's come back. And that's incredibly popular with Turks. So I think at the moment, you know, keeping those peaceful relations with Greece is, is a win for Erdogan. And how has this been received in Greece? Really positively. I mean, I've just been looking through the Greek newspapers. They're saying things like, we've seen a different Erdogan. I mean, they saw an Erdogan who smiled yesterday in Athens. That's something quite unusual, I think. Um, you know, talking in pretty much the same terms as the Turkish newspapers are talking about this. You know, I think it's a relief for Greece. Here's the thing. You know, it, when you look at uh, the kind of things that Turkey says from somewhere like the UK or further afield, you know, it, it looks like rhetoric. It just looks like sort of, you know, showmanship, brings, brinksmanship, whatever. But if you go to Greece um, and you talk to the people there, they are genuinely concerned when Erdogan starts on with rhetoric about war in the Aegean, about retaking the Aegean islands, because Greece is a tiny country and Turkey is its massive neighbour. Now, of course, Greece has... You know, it's an EU member. It's generally across the board had the backing of uh, of Western states in its row with Turkey. And yet, you know, that real fear remains. So I think, you know, Greeks are very, very relieved at this point that they're seeing a far friendlier Erdogan. And indeed, if you have, and you are Turkish, if you're Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and you have an improved relationship with Greece, that naturally, one would imagine, would, would lead to a better relationship with the European Union. Yeah, I think the European Union as well is going to be breathing a sigh of relief. But, you know, there are other issues. One of them is Sweden's NATO membership. That's still not been fully approved. That's something that Erdogan can still use. Of course, there's still also uh, the refugee issue. Now, that's something that particularly threatened Greece. You know, Erdogan has repeatedly threatened to open his borders 
allow migrants to go to Europe if he doesn't get more money, more support. And he has done that on occasion as well. Now, that issue has not gone away. Um, I think, you know, everyone knows that he can still wield that at some point. And then, of course, the divisions over Israel and Palestine, you know, that is something that's going to carry on for as long as this conflict carries on. And indeed, I mean, the European Union will be viewing this with, with a sort of a cool head, one would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also we have to look at the other things that are going on. You know, just this week, the, the UK Treasury has sanctioned a number of Turkish companies, which it says are supplying uh, Russia's war machine. You, there's still that issue going on. You know, Turkey's just said that it's going to um, allow t- Russia to open a gas hub here in Turkey, which could allow Russian gas to keep coming all the way in a secret way to, to Europe. So these are still issues that Erdogan is presenting to the European Union and to the US as well. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul. Thank you, as ever, for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories, as well as those too often left untold. I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time right here on Monocle Radio. Finally, on today's programme, one of the summer's biggest blockbusters finally will be released in Japan after a controversy over how it was promoted delayed to its arrival in cinemas. I'm talking about Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, chronicling the development of the atomic bomb. It received critical acclaim, but when the film was promoted alongside the Barbie movie, it caused a stir in Japan, which was devastated by two atomic bombs at the end of the Second World War. Here's Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief, Fiona Wilson. I think there are a few reasons why it wasn't released in the first place. I mean, one one very simple factor in the summer in Japan, the people are looking for family f- friendly films. So that was one aspect of it. A lot of people said it's just it just wasn't a film for multiplexes in Japan in the summer. Obviously, the bigger issue really was about this marketing campaign, very unfortunate marketing campaign, Barbenheimer, as they were calling it, where they were conflating Oppenheimer, very serious subject matter with Barbie, a slightly fluffier film. The look of Barbie, pink atomic cloud, it just it was very, very unfortunate. And and it certainly didn't go down well with some people, not everyone, but some people started a, you know, hashtag no Barbenheimer thing on Twitter. I think Toa, Toho Toa, who are the distributors, usually the distributors of uh, Universal Film, kept away from the whole thing. They didn't release the film like they would normally do. You know, it's been talked about on and off, award season coming up. The film's done incredibly well overseas. It's done well in Asia. And I think a lot of people here, film lovers, quite wanted to see it. And when we heard that the film is going to be distributed by Bitter's End, which is an indie distributor, they're much better known for doing, you know, a, a film like Parasite, the Korean film. Apparently, they negotiated with Dentsu, big Japanese agency, and that deal was struck to really get Toho out of the picture 
and Bitter's End could distribute it. We don't know when it'll be released, but what they said was there was a lot of discussion, you know, obviously well aware of the sensitivities in Japan, and they felt that the film ought to be seen. It's Christopher Nolan's greatest film, said to be they, that that was in their statement, and they felt it should be seen on the big screen. And certainly in markets like China, it did very well on IMAX. I noticed today I'm looking at social media, and certainly from film people, the reaction is great. We're going to get a chance to see it, which is what the distributors said. They said, please watch it on the screen. You know, I think they they want people not to be prejudiced against the film. This unfortunate marketing campaign that kicked it all off, yeah, it, it was not a good start for the film. And it, it was particularly in the summer. If you think that the 6th of August is the anniversary of the Hiroshima atomic bomb, 9th of August, Nagasaki bomb. Uh, these, are, these are very painful uh, memories for the Japanese. And regardless of what people think about the rights and wrongs of the atomic bomb. It was a very tasteless marketing campaign. They apologised for it. It's a very important topic for people in Japan. I've just been in Nagasaki. I went to the Peace Memorial and there were thousands of school children there. I think some people have felt that maybe the film focuses very much on the biography aspect and not on the consequences of the bomb. That isn't even really alluded to what happened as a result of the bomb being dropped. And I think that is true, that that will will maybe touch a nerve with some people. But I think so much has been written about it. I think people are prepared for, you know, what's going to be in the film. Definitely important subject. I don't think there's any sense of people not wanting to address the subject. And I noticed that there's been a little bit of commentary like that, that Japan really ought to come to terms with why the bomb was dropped. Now, you could argue about that very much so, but I think that's not really the issue here. I think There were sensitivities. The distributors didn't really want to make that any worse. The coverage has been quite neutral, actually. It's quite interesting. I I haven't seen a sense of outrage at all. It's been more about the film is opening. You know, it's done very well overseas. Interestingly, I did see a piece about the fact that it's so interesting for foreign media, the release of the film in Japan. And I think there's something in that, that I feel that the the interest from the foreign media has become a bit fascinating in itself for Japan. It's like, why do, why, why do people care so much whether we see it or not? I don't feel there are going to be uh, riots on the street that this film is being released. Fiona Wilson in Tokyo there for us. And that's all the time we have for today's edition of The Briefing. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers too, Lillian Fawcett and Tom Webb. Our studio manager was Callum McLean. The Briefing's back on Monday at the same time, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>